my two youngest kids are 17 and 19. And when they were a, a lot younger, maybe a decade younger, they both came home from school the same week boasting that they'd studied about birds. My daughter, the 19-year-old, who was then probably around nine, I think, boasted that she'd studied about birds with a biologist from the University of Washington who would come all the way to the island to spend the day teaching them about birds. My son, by the way, her name is Soren. We named her after Soren Kierkegaard. It's not easy being one of my kids. uh, (laughs) My son, Spelled E-G-I-L. My wife's Norwegian, so but we, everybody pronounced it eagle, so we go with eagle. He, he boasted, no, we study about birds too, but we study about birds with a naturalist from the Conservation Society. So they got in this little competition about who, who had the better education in birds. Now, of course, I immediately think my daughter was blessed especially with her study of birds that day with one of the best biology departments in the country and with one of their biologists. But what kind of a bird did my daughter study with that biologist from the University of Washington biology department? A dead bird. And where was the dead bird? In a pan. And she spent the day, the whole day, with a biologist from the University of Washington Doing what to that dead bird in a pan in the school laboratory? Taking it apart. Dissecting it. Now notice you can't dissect anything without first what? Killing it. That's a direct quote from William Wordsworth. My son, Eagle, spent the day with a Another kind of a bird, and you see, the, the, the naturalist wanted him to encounter what kind of a bird? Live bird. So he got in a bus. See, my daughter studied objectively, see, objective knowledge, objective truth. We love that word objective. Anybody here want to be treated like an object? But we love that word objective. My, my son, um, with his naturalist from the Conservation Society, got on a bus and went to where the bird lives in its live habitat. Because they're treating the bird not like an object, but like a subject. Anybody here not want to be treated like a subject? But, oh, we didn't like that word subjective. Hmm. When you treat something like a subject, see, there's no understanding without standing under. So he stood under the authority of that bird and spent the entire day interacting with it in his live environment. So if anybody got cut up, it was him. I begin with this story because this is our challenge, sisters and brothers, in the 21st century with these 22nd century kids, is that... We spent the last couple hundred years treating the Bible like a bird in a pan. And as time, we're going to communicate to this culture, we started treating the Bible like a bird in a bush. Like a subject, not like an object. And one of the reasons why we're so stuck in this bird in a pan mentality is this Acute condition, all of us have, and we have it in a severe form, and I call it versitis. 
Uh, I have one of my doctoral students is a Jewish rabbi, and so he's my secret weapon. When I, whenever I want to know something about Jesus, I don't understand Judaism. I call him on the phone. I say, Bob, tell me about this. And, and I've noticed that when he, when we're trying to talk and he's trying to explain things to me, I'm immediately trying to help him out and go to the chapter and verse. And he's, he's going, he doesn't do that. And finally he said, oh, chapter and verse, that's you Protestants do that. We just talk story. And all of a sudden it hit me. Wait a minute. We have been accessing the Bible from this alien default. You all know the Bible wasn't written in chapter and verse, right? See, that's something we did to the Bible. We did it to the Bible because in a Gutenberg world, that's how we communicate. It was through words. And what chapter and verse do is enable us to turn these stories into words so they can become propositions. And that's how I access the Bible. And that's how we all have. Every one of us here is really good at chapter and verse. I'll prove it to you. John 3.16, let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he, that should not perish. Now, you all said it in unison from the same translation. Okay, let's do John 3, 15. Oh, wait a minute. What story is it a part of? I heard a few. See? So, wait a minute. We've learned the scriptures from this alien default of chapter and verse. And suddenly we find ourselves in a culture. Let me tell you, this culture does not communicate in words. This culture is basically wordless. Look at commercials. Increasingly look at commercials. Commercials are increasingly wordless. They have no words to them. This is how this culture communicates. It communicates in stories wrapped around a metaphor with a soundtrack. I repeat, narratives wrapped around a metaphor. I just combine those two words together and make them one. Narrow four with a soundtrack. And what we're learning from cognitive science, we could spend the whole time on this, but I'm not going to, but one of the greatest interfaces now between theology and science is this cognitive studies, and I do semiotics, so I'm into psychoneurolinguistics, but the big discovery is, you know what? Words come last. Words come last. That's the last thing you get is words. Your mind is not made of words. The last thing that they come up with is words. Your mind is made of metaphors that you turn into stories, and finally they become, at the very end of a long process, what? Words. You prove one every time you dream. You dream in words. You dream in metaphors that you turn into stories. You will never have a dream of you reading because your mind doesn't think that way. As much as, much as you love books, you'll never have a dream of you reading a book. So for us to return to the scriptures, and I don't call them scriptures anymore, I just call it the story. For us to return to the story and to read it. we got to read it as if for the first time. We don't know these stories because we only know them as verses where we've tried to extract principles and propositions based on words. We even describe one of the most complex, subtle, sophisticated words in the Greek language, logos, and we translate it as, that's the worst translation, word. And our problem was, I love what Jonathan did with this. The word became, no, we just made the word more words. It didn't become flesh. 
So let's take a, a familiar story. And let's return to it. And that's what I'm doing all the time now. This is, this is the big thing in my life. I'm just re reading the Bible as if for the first time. I don't know these stories. I pretend I have never heard this story before. And I'm reading them as a story. And then after I get the story right, then I do my theologizing. See, what we've done is to deliver theologies from these verses rather than derive our theology from these stories. So, let's take an easy one. Let's see how well we know one. The Emmaus Road. Now, as I tell the story, as we, we interact and see how well we know this story, three things we got to remember something. There are three things that belong together, and if you separate them, the whole of Christian faith comes unraveled. I call it the holy braid. And the three things are Jesus, Scripture, or I call it the story, and the Holy Spirit. That is the holy braid. You can never separate those three. And they're all evident and present in this one story. Now, you know the story. There are these Emmaus Road disciples. Do we, do we know anything about these disciples? How many were there? Two. Do we know anything about them? Do we know the names of any? Okay, Cleopas is one. What's the other one, male or female? Don't know. Well, we do know. Hey, we got to start reading Bird in the Bush. Most pictures, actually, of the Maus Road show two male disciples. But we know that these two disciples, because the end of the story, they invite Jesus to do what? stay and eat with them. So, wait a minute. So it's probably, most likely, almost certainly, a couple. Do we even know the names of this couple? Yeah, we know Cleopas, but we also know Cleopas's wife. And her name was Mary. And who, was Cleo who were Cleopas and Mary? Well, we know Mary was married to Cleopas because that was one of the three Marys, remember? that stayed with Jesus throughout the whole crucifixion at the foot of the cross. And we know that one of them, Mary, wife of Cleopas, sister of Jesus' mother. Now, that doesn't mean Mary was Mary's sister. I mean, this is not George Foreman, you know. Um, but you call people sister if they're... So this is... Wait a minute, this is Jesus' aunt and uncle. Wow, this is even family. A family who one member of which stayed faithful to him at the whole time of the cross. And they don't what? Recognize him. By the way, every post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, this is the disciples' number one problem. They do not recognize Jesus. It's our problem today. We still have problems recognizing him. See, we're trying to do cognition, not recognition. How, how far, where were they going? They're going from Jerusalem to Emmaus. How, how far is that? Anybody know? About seven, eight miles. And while they're on this trip, 
they, ha they have this conversation with Jesus, and there's this incredible moment. I'm not going to say anything more about this moment because you need to read Conrad Gemp's chapter 7, and Jesus asks this little masterpiece, my favorite chapter in the whole book, Conrad, Jesus pretends. I love this moment. Are you the only one in Jerusalem and you don't know about these things? And Jesus says, what? What things? This is the greatest moment that's ever happened in the history of the world. The resurrection of Jesus from the... And he goes, what things? And then their conversation on this walk to Emmaus. Jesus opens up the scriptures. He opens up the... In other words... It, it says he tells the whole story from Genesis to the maps, if you will. <laughs> he tells the whole story and show how they were all related to him, that the whole story is his story. And you know what? They still don't get it. How can this be? What is going on here? They still don't recognize him. And then when they get to Emmaus, they, they, they say, this is so good, stay with us, stay with us. Now, Eastern hospitality, you, you're, you always extend an invitation to stay. But the person always says what? No. And so Jesus keeps walking because that's the way Eastern hospitality is because you, you say, will you please stay and eat with us? But you always say no because the real extension of an invitation is the second one. They say, no, we really mean it. We want you to stay. And so Jesus says, okay. And he comes back. Now, this, I love what, what you've heard this morning from, from Brian and Jonathan and Adelaide. I mean, did you hear that if you are not, when you're hearing these stories, if you are not scandalized, if you are not shocked, I love Brian's disoriented, you're not in the right story. These stories have become so tame to us. No, these stories got Jesus killed. Jesus was killed for the, his table talk and his table manners, the stories that he told and the people that he ate with. They become much too tame and domesticated for us. So what happens next is unbelievable. They sit at a table. We're not sure where they sat or reclined. And what happens next? This is where anybody hearing the story wouldn't believe it. What happens next? Jesus blesses and breaks the bread. What? No, no, that can't happen. Because whose table is it? It's Cleopas's table. No, he's the head of that table. He's the one that would have blessed and break the bread. So connect the dots, sisters and brothers. We got to start bird in the bush. Connect the dots. Read it as one story. And when you read it for this culture, you got to turn it into cinema. It's got to become a motion picture. If you can't see this in living color, in moving pictures, we can't share the story to this world. So imagine it. So we know Jesus must have said, what? May I bless and break the bread. Now they still don't recognize him. 
They still, see, there is a moment. Then they recognize him, but it's not yet. It's not yet. They still don't recognize him. So Jesus takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. And it says, then they recognize him. Do you know why? Do you know? Can you see it? Motion picture. He takes the bread. He blesses it. Then they see what? The wounds. It is the Lord. Then they recognize him. You want to recognize Jesus? Look for the wounds. You want to recognize Jesus today? Go where the wounded people are. Go where people are hurting. Go where people are, are in need. And See, Jesus didn't take the scars with him into eternity. He took the wounds as, there is one, as long as one person is out there and not at the table. Their wounds. When they saw the wounds, they recognized him, and then he vanished. Every time they recognize him in one of his post-resurrection appearances, he does what? He vanishes. Because Jesus said, it's good for you that I go away. Because I will send you the Spirit. And here in one story, story, scripture, Jesus, Spirit. You want to recognize Jesus? Look for the wounds. Jesus.